Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries. And today we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. So, I have never read anything by R. Austin Freeman, and if you've ever heard of him, you can shoot me an email. So I am personally very excited. Uh, this story that we're going to be reading is called The Man with the Nailed Shoes, and it's from the book called John Thorndike's Cases, written by R. Austin Freeman. So, with no more waffle, let's jump right in. There are, I suppose, few places even on the east coast of England more lonely and remote than the village of Little Sundersley and the country that surrounds it. Far from any railway, and some miles distant from any considerable town, it remains an outpost of civilization, in which primitive manners and customs and old world tradition linger on into an age that has elsewhere forgotten them. In the summer, it is true, a small contingent of visitors, adventurous in spirit, though mostly of sedate and solitary habits, make their appearance to swell its meager population, and impart to the wide stretches of smooth sand that fringe its shores a fleeting air of life and sober gaiety. But in late September, the season of the year in which I made its acquaintance, its pasture lands lie desolate, the rugged paths along the cliffs are seldom trodden by human foot, and the sands are a desert waste, on which for days together no footprint appears save that left by some passing seabird. Oh man, that was one paragraph? What an image. <laughs> Um, okay, this reminds me um, of that one place that was described in The Adventure of the Lion's Mane. Um, that was a Sherlock Holmes story I did a while ago. It described a place that Sherlock Holmes was hanging out at. I think it was in... Um, it, it was one of my early episodes, maybe like episode six, maybe seven. Um, but regardless, it was really cool. And it kind of described where Sherlock Holmes was living when he retired or maybe was on vacation or something. I forget, but it, it showed like some solitary place on the coasts of England with cliffs and beaches, and it was kind of separated from the rest of civilization. So that's kind of what this image brought to my mind, and I think that's super cool. Like, dude, how cool would it be to just kind of find a solitary little cubbyhole on the edge of England that has gorgeous cliffs and amazing beaches that's just empty, you know? I had been assured by my medical agent, Mr. Torcival, that I should find the practice of which I was now taking charge, quote, an exceedingly soft billet, and suitable for a studious man. And suddenly, he had not misled me, for the patients were, in fact, so few that I was quite concerned for my principal, and rather dull for want of work. Hence, when my friend John Thorndike, the well-known medico-legal expert, proposed to come down and stay with me for a weekend, and perhaps a few days beyond, I hailed the proposal with delight, and welcomed him with open arms. You certainly don't seem to be overworked, Jervis, he remarked, as we turned out of the gate after tea on the day of his arrival for a stroll on the shore. Is this a new practice, or an old one in a state of senile decay? Why, the fact is, I answered, there is virtually no practice. Cooper, my principal, has been here about six years, and he has private means he has never made any serious effort to build one up. And the other man, Dr. Burroughs, being uncommonly keen and the people very conservative, Cooper has never really got his foot in. However, it doesn't seem to trouble him. Well, if you're satisfied, I suppose you are, said Thorndyke with a smile. You're getting a seaside holiday and being paid for it. But I didn't know you were as near to the sea as this. We were entering, as he spoke, an artificial gapway cut through the low cliff, forming a steep cart track down to the shore. It was locally known as Sundersley Gap, and was used principally, when used at all, by the farmer's carts which came down to gather seaweed after a gale. What a magnificent stretch of sand, continued Thorndyke, as we reached the bottom, and stood looking out seaward across the deserted beach. There's something very majestic and solemn in a great expanse of sandy shore when the tide is out, and I know of nothing which is capable of conveying the impression of solitude so completely. 
The smooth, unbroken surface not only displays itself untenanted for the moment, but it offers convincing testimony that it has lain thus undisturbed through a considerable lapse of time. Here, for instance, we have clear evidence that for several days only two pairs of feet besides our own have trodden this gap. How did you arrive at the several days? I asked. In the simplest manner possible, he replied. The moon is now in the third quarter, and the tides are consequently neap tides. You can see quite plainly the two lines of seaweed and jetsam which indicate the high water marks of the spring tides and the neap tides respectively. The strip of comparatively dry sand between them, over which the water has not risen for several days, is, as you see, marked by only two sets of footprints, and those footprints will not be completely obliterated by the sea until the next spring tide, nearly a week from today. Yes, I see now. The thing appears obvious enough when one has heard the explanation. But it is rather odd that no one should have passed through this gap for days, and then that four persons should have come here within quite a short interval of one another. What makes you think they have done so? Thorndike asked. Uh, well, I replied, both of these sets of footprints appear to be quite fresh, and have been made about the same time. Not at the same time, Jervis, rejoined Thorndike. There is certainly an interval of several hours between them, though precisely how many hours we cannot judge, since there has been so little wind lately to disturb them. But the fishermen unquestionably passed here not more than three hours ago, and I should say probably within an hour, whereas the other man, who seems to have come up from my boat to fetch something of considerable weight, returned through the gap certainly not less, and probably more, than four hours ago. I gazed at my friend in blank astonishment, for these events befell in the days before I had joined him as his assistant, and his special knowledge and powers of inference were not then fully appreciated by me. It is clear, Thorndike, I said, that footprints have a very different meaning to you from what they have for me. I don't see in the least how you have reached any of these conclusions. I suppose not, was the reply. But you see, special knowledge of this kind is in the stock-in-trade of the medical jurist, and has to be acquired by special study, though the present example is one of the greatest simplicity. But let us consider it point by point, and first we will take this set of footprints, which I have inferred to be a fisherman's. Note their enormous size. They should be the footprints of a giant, but the length of the stride shows they are made by a rather short man. Then observe the massiveness of the soles, and the fact that there are no nails in them. Note also the peculiar clumsy tread, the deep toe and heel marks, as if the walker had wooden legs or fixed ankles and knees. From that character we can safely infer high boots of thick, rigid leather, so that we can diagnose high boots, massive and stiff, with nailless soles and many sizes too large for the wearer. But the only boot that answers this description is the fisherman's thigh boot, made of enormous size to enable him to wear in the winter two or three pairs of thick knitted stockings, one over the other. Now look at the other footprints. There is a double track, you see, one set coming from the sea, and one going towards it. As the man, who was bow-legged and turned his toes in, has trodden in his own footprints, it is obvious that he came from the sea and returned to it. But observe the difference in the two sets of prints. The returning ones are much deeper than the others, and the stride much shorter. Evidently, he was carrying something when he returned, and that something was very heavy. Moreover, we can see, by the greater depth of the toe impressions, that he was stooping forward as he walked, and so probably carried the weight on his back. Is that quite clear? Perfectly, I replied. But how do you arrive at the interval of time between the visits of the two men? That also is quite simple. The tide is now about halfway out. It is thus about three hours since high water. Now, the fisherman walked just about the neap tide, the high water mark, sometimes above it and sometimes below. But none of his footprints have been obliterated. Therefore, he passed after high water, that is, less than three hours ago. And since his footprints are all equally distinct, he could not have passed when the sand was very wet. Therefore, he probably passed less than an hour ago. The other man's footprints, on the other hand, reach only to the neap tide, high water mark, where they end abruptly. 
The sea has washed over the remainder of the tracks and obliterated them. Therefore, he passed not less than three hours ago and not more than four days ago, probably within 24 hours. This man has not only been able to extrapolate some insane bits of information from a footprint, but also extrapolate when they were made, like when they were tracked in the sand. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I don't know if this is just Thorndike flexing his skills or if this actually has to do with the future mystery. But either way, I'm very excited. This has a lot of potential. <laughs> As Thorndike concluded his demonstration, the sound of voices was borne to us from above, mingled with the tramping of feet, and immediately afterwards, a very singular party appeared at the head of the gap descending towards the shore. First came a short, burly fisherman clad in oilskins and sou'wester, clumping along awkwardly in his great sea boots. Then the local police sergeant, in company with my professional rival, Dr. Burroughs, while the rear of the procession was brought up by two constables carrying a stretcher. As he reached the bottom of the gap, the fisherman, who was evidently acting as guide, turned along the shore, retracing his own tracks, and the procession followed in his wake. A surgeon, a stretcher, two constables, and a police sergeant, observed Thorndyke. What does that suggest to your mind, Jervis? A fall from the cliff, I replied, or a body washed up on the shore? Probably, he rejoined, but we may well walk in that direction. We turned to follow the retreating procession, and as we strode along the smooth surface left by the retiring tide, Thorndyke resumed. The subject of footprints has always interested me deeply for two reasons. First, the evidence furnished by footprints is constantly being brought forward and is often of cardinal importance. And secondly, the whole subject is capable of really systematic and scientific treatment. In the main, the data are anatomical, but age, sex, occupation, health, and disease all give their various indications. Clearly, for instance, the footprints of an old man will differ from those of a young man of the same height, and I need not point out to you that those of a person suffering from locomotor ataxia or paralysis agitans, <laughs> I don't know, would be quite unmistakable. Yes, I see that plainly enough, I said. Here now, he continued, is a case in point. He halted to point with a stick at a row of footprints that appeared suddenly above high watermark, and having proceeded a short distance, crossed the line again and vanished where the waves had washed over them. They were easily distinguished from any of the others by the clear impressions of circular rubber heels. Okay, who wears heels on the beach? Do you see anything remarkable about them? He asked. I notice that they are considerably deeper than our own, I answered. Yes, and the boots are about the same size as ours, whereas the stride is considerably shorter. Quite a short stride, in fact. Now there is a pretty constant ratio between the length of the foot and the length of the leg. Between the length of the leg and the height of the person, and between the stature and the length of the stride. A long foot means a long leg, a tall man, and a long stride. But here we have a long foot and a short stride. What do you make of that? He laid down his stick, a smooth partridge cane, one side of which was marked by small lines into inches and feet, beside the footprint, to demonstrate the discrepancy. The depth of the footprint shows that he was a much heavier man than either of us, I suggested. Perhaps he was unusually fat. Yes, said Thorndike. That seems to be the explanation. The carrying of a dead weight shortens the stride, and fat is practically a dead weight. The conclusion is that he was about 5 feet 10 inches high and excessively fat. He picked up his cane, and we resumed our walk, keeping an eye on the procession ahead, until a head disappeared around a curve in the coastline when we mended our pace somewhat. Presently we reached a small headland, and, turning the shoulder of cliff, came full upon the party which had preceded us. The men had halted in a narrow bay, and now stood looking down at a prostate figure, beside which the surgeon was kneeling. "'We were wrong, you see,' observed Thorndyke. "'He has not fallen over the cliff, nor has he been washed up by the sea. 
he is lying above the high water mark, and those footprints that we have been examining appear to be his. As we approached, the sergeant turned and held up his hand. I'll ask you to not walk around the body just now, gentlemen, he said. There seems to have been foul play here, and I want to be clear about the tracks before anyone crosses them. Acknowledging this caution, we advanced to where the constables were standing, and looked down with some curiosity at the dead man. He was a tall, frail-looking man, thin to the point of emaciation, and appeared to be about thirty-five years of age. He lay in an easy posture with half-closed eyes and a placid expression that contrasted strangely enough with the tragic circumstances of his death. It is a clear case of murder, said Dr. Burroughs, dusting the sand from his knees as he stood up. There is a deep knife wound above the heart, which must have caused death almost instantaneously. How long should you say he has been dead, doctor? asked the sergeant. Twelve hours, at least, was the reply. He is quite cold and stiff. Twelve hours, eh? Huh? repeated the officer. That would bring it to about six o'clock this morning. I won't commit myself to a definite time, said Dr. Brose hastily. I only say not less than twelve hours. It might have been considerably more. Ah, said the sergeant. Well, he made a pretty good fight for his life to all appearances. He nodded at the sand, which for some feet around the body bore deeply indented marks of feet, as though a furious struggle had taken place. It's a mighty queer affair, pursued the sergeant, addressing Dr. Burroughs. There seems to have been only one man in it. There's only one set of footprints besides those of the deceased, and we've got to find out who he is, and I reckon there won't be much trouble about that, seeing the kind of trademarks he has left behind him. No, agreed the surgeon. There ought not to be much trouble in identifying those boots. He would seem to be a laborer, judging by the hobnails. No, sir, not a laborer, dissented the sergeant. The foot is too small for one thing, and the nails are not regular hobnails. They're a good deal smaller, and a laborer's boots would have nails all around the edges, and there would be iron tips on the heels, and probably the toes, too. Now these have got no tips, and the nails are arranged in a pattern on the soles and heels. They're probably shooting boots or sporting shoes of some kind. He strode to and fro with his notebook in his hand, writing down hasty memoranda, and stooping to scrutinize the impressions in the sand. The surgeon also busied himself in noting down the facts concerning which he would have to give evidence, while Thorndyke regarded in silence, with an air of intense preoccupation, the footprints around the body, which remained to testify to the circumstances of the crime. So the sergeant and the surgeon over here are just kind of like busying themselves, like taking notes, looking at evidence, and then in the middle of this kind of flurry of things to do is Thorndyke, just kind of sitting there and looking at the footprints. We can assume he's deducting very important things. It is pretty clear up to a certain point, the sergeant observed, as he concluded his investigations, how the affair happened, and it is pretty clear, too, that the murder was premeditated. You see, doctor, the deceased gentleman, Mr. Hearn, was apparently walking home from Port Marston. We saw his footprints along the shore, those rubber heels make them easy to identify, and he didn't go down Sundersley Gap. He probably meant to climb up the cliff by that little track you see there, which the people about here call the Shepherd's Path. Now the murderer must have known that he was coming, and waited upon the cliff to keep a lookout, when he saw Mr. Hearn enter the bay, he came down the path and attacked him, and, after a tough struggle, succeeded in stabbing him. Then he turned and went back up the path. You can see the double track between the path and the place where the struggle took place, and the footprints going to the path are on top of those coming from it. If you follow the tracks, said Dr. Burroughs, you ought to be able to see where the murderer went to. I'm afraid not, replied the sergeant. There are no marks on the path itself. The rock is too hard, and so is the ground above, I fear but I'll go over it carefully all the same. The investigations being so far concluded, the body was lifted onto the stretcher, and the cortege, consisting of the bearers, the doctor, and the fisherman, moved off towards the gap, while the sergeant, having civilly wished us good evening, scrambled up the shepherd's path, and vanished above. 
A very smart officer, that, said Thorndyke. I should like to know what he wrote in his notebook. His account of the circumstances of the murder seemed a very reasonable one, I said. Dude, <laughs> it is rare to have smart police officers in a mystery book. Usually they make the police look really dumb and the detective look really smart, so this is rare. Although we'll see if the sergeant was actually correct in his ideas of events, but hey, we'll see. Very. He noted the plain and essential facts and drew the natural conclusions from them. But there are some very singular features in this case, so singular that I am disposed to make a few notes for my own information. He stooped over the place where the body had lain, and having narrowly examined the sand there, and in the place where the dead man's feet had rested, drew out his notebook and made a memorandum. He next made a rapid sketch plan of the bay, marking the position of the body and the various impressions in the sand, and then following the double track leading from and to the shepherd's path, scrutinized the footprints with the deepest attention, making copious notes and sketches in his book. We may as well go up by the shepherd's path, said Thorndyke. I think we are equal to the climb, and there may be visible traces of the murder after all. The rock is only a sandstone, and not a very hard one either. We approached the foot of the little rugged track which zigzagged up the face of the cliff, and stooping down among the stiff, dry herbage, examined the surface. Here, at the bottom of the path, where the rock was softened by the weather, there were several distinct impressions on the crumbling surface of the murderer's nailed boots, though they were somewhat confused by the tracks of the sergeant, whose boots were heavily nailed. But as we ascended, the marks became rather less distinct, and quite a short distance from the foot of the cliff we lost them altogether, though we had no difficulty in following the more recent traces of the sergeant's passage of the path. Thanks, Sarge. I thought you didn't want to mess with the footprints, huh? Well, you did. <laughs> when we reached the top of the cliff, we paused to scan the path that ran along its edge. But here, too, although the sergeant's heavy boots had left quite visible impressions on the ground, there were no signs of any other feet. At a little distance, the sagacious officer himself was pursuing his investigations, walking backwards and forwards with his body bent double and his eyes fixed on the ground. Not a trace of him anywhere, said he, straightening himself up as we approached. I was afraid there wouldn't be after all this dry weather. I shall have to try a different track. This is a small place, and if those boots belong to anyone living here, they'll be sure to be known. The deceased gentleman, Mr. Hearn, I think you called him, said Thorndyke as we turned toward the village. Is he a native of the locality? Oh, no, sir, replied the officer. He is almost a stranger. He'd only been here about three weeks. But, you know, in a little place like this, a man soon gets to be known. And his business, too, for that matter he added with a smile. What was his business, then? asked Thorndyke. Pleasure, I believe. He was down here for a holiday, though it's a good way past the season, but then he had a friend living here, and that makes a difference. Mr. Draper, up at the Poplars, was an old friend of his, I understand. I'm going to call on him now. We walked along the footpath that led towards the village, but had only proceeded two or three hundred yards when a loud hail drew our attention to a man running across a field towards us from the direction of the cliff. Why, there is Mr. Draper himself! exclaimed the sergeant, stopping short and waving his hand. I expect he has heard the news already. Thorndyke and I also halted, and with some curiosity, watched the approach of this new party to the tragedy. As the stranger drew near, we saw that he was a tall, athletic-looking man of about forty, dressed in a Norfolk knickerbocker suit, and having the appearance of an ordinary country gentleman, excepting that he carried in his hand, in place of a walking stick, the staff of a butterfly net, the folding ring and bag of which partly projected from his pocket. Ah, <laughs> so we're going to have to stop it there for today. I know this is going to be a very, very short episode, but, you know, here we are. I thought it was a good place to stop. So basically what has happened so far is that Thorndyke and Jarvis, Jarvis with an E, not with an A, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Um, they both went down to the beach where Jarvis is currently staying 
And they just, you know, looked at some footprints for a while. Earlier on, Thorndike was flexing his skills by explaining to Jervis exactly the origins and time of two separate tracks of footprints in the sand um, of the beach. And then, later on, they go to find a dead body, and they start their investigations. So, they don't really know much about the murder so far. They just know that the murderer was waiting on the cliff for the victim to arrive, and then when he did, he came down, stabbed him, and then went back up the shepherd's path. And now, I just finished when Mr. Draper, who was the victim's close friend, is running towards the sergeant and Thorndike. So, I guess we'll see what he has to say next week, because, yeah, we're gonna end it there. So, uh, I just have a couple of things to say. First of all, if you guys have any uh, comments or feedback or especially recommendations for what I should read, send them to classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. I would really appreciate it. Secondly, if you're on an app or website or other type of service where you can engage with my podcast, then I would really appreciate it if you did so, because these stories are really insane and old, <laughs> and I think it's really valuable for more people to hear them and be able to listen to these uh, sometimes really strange books. But yeah, so anyways, that would be greatly appreciated. And thirdly, there are those two links in the show notes that we know and love. One is just to directly donate to me via PayPal if you ever feel like it for whatever reason. And uh, the second one is to just become my patron. So if you want to do either of those, the links are in the show notes. So anyways, I had an amazing week this week and I hope that you guys have an amazing week as well. So I'll see you guys next Monday. Bye.